This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. It's 2001, and we're talking about drought, British imperialism, cricket, and dance numbers. The movie, Lagan. Welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, And this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best movies of all time across all genres, across all countries. And when we do, we will send them into outer space. For what reason? Because we can. Uh, we are right now in the middle of our musical series. And today we are covering Lagan, which is the very first Bollywood film that we've ever done on this podcast. And we felt like our musical series couldn't be complete without acknowledging the contribution that Bollywood has made to the movie musical. It's true. I mean, if there is any film production center that is like most associated with the musical, it's got to be India. It's got to be Bollywood. And I mean, it's got to be really hard to pick a Bollywood movie. We really wrestled with this a long time. We finally settled on Lagan because Lagan is one of the Bollywood films that in the industry there, they kind of talk about how there is a before Lagan and an after Lagan. This is a really pivotal movie that came out in 2001 that really changed the Bollywood culture of uh, what types of types of films were hits. When this film was nominated for a foreign language Oscar in 2002, it was a big, 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 big deal for everybody involved. And I think it really actually is a pivotal film here in terms of putting Bollywood more on the map of audiences in America. And I mean, it's such a big deal that it's like streaming on Netflix, which is awesome. And Netflix India is actually making a documentary that came out this year that is a 20th anniversary celebration of Lagan. It is its 20th year anniversary. This is a huge deal for everybody who loves this film. And so, yeah, all signs finally, after much wrestling, pointed to Lagan. Before we get into Lagan, I just want to take a moment to talk about the passing of Stephen Sondheim. Obviously, right now we are doing musicals, but even if we weren't, Stephen Sondheim is a giant in the world of musicals and theater and art. And he is someone who... In his passing, it's been amazing to just see how far his tentacles reached throughout every part of this, you know, entertainment world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is no 
Tim Burton making a version of Sweeney Todd without Sondheim doing Sweeney Todd. I mean, we haven't gotten to talk about Stephen Sondheim very much on this episode for a, a, in this podcast for a person who was such like a titan in the world of song and composition and lyrics. I mean, a guy who won like eight Tonys, eight Grammys, an Oscar, a Pulitzer. Um, but we did get to talk about him in our West Side Story episode because that was where Stephen Sondheim really started to get his major props as a lyricist. He wrote the lyrics to West Side Story when he was in his 20s. So that movie coming out now at a time where we can kind of honor his his songs, his poetry that he put into into words is just beautiful. But, but yeah, I mean, the list of his works just goes on and on and on and on. I mean, Into the Woods, Gypsy, Merrily We Roll Along, Assassins. You know, it's funny when I was thinking about Sondheim, I was reading different things about him online. And I suggest that if you haven't yet, Mark Harris, who was on our show a little while ago, wrote an amazing piece about him. So just type in Mark Harris, Stephen Sondheim, and you'll be able to read a a beautiful tribute. But one of the things I found out in my weird side research about Stephen Sondheim was that he wrote a lot of the music for Dick Tracy. And I was uh, realizing that that Warren Beatty movie, where Madonna played Breathless Mahoney, she was singing Sondheim songs. And I remember I loved that album. And it never occurred to me that those were not Madonna songs. Uh, sooner or later, I always get my man, uh, won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. And I know that in the grand scheme of Stephen Sondheim's career, it's a small, very small, uh, you know, part of it. But it was interesting that that's how I... I guess, became an original fan. I just didn't even know that I was loving Sondheim, but yet I was at that point. It's true. And I mean, of of all the periods in time, I mean, there's a movie that just came out um, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, Lin-Manuel Miranda's directorial debut for for the movies called Tick, Tick, Boom. You know, it's an adaptation of uh, Jonathan Larson's autobiography. Mm. Jonathan Larson, backstory, very quick is um, the lyricist who wrote the musical Rent, but he died the night that Rent was scheduled to preview, so he never actually got to see his musical Rent become a huge success. But before he died, uh, at the age of like 35, 36, he wrote a musical about his life and about all his anxieties and about how Stephen Sondheim kept inspiring him to keep going, that when he felt like he was a nobody aspiring musical theater wannabe who worked at a diner, Stephen Sondheim every so often would say like one promising thing to him or one like keep going kid. And it meant so much to him that like in this Lim and Will Miranda movie, you actually see an actor playing Stephen Sondheim, like showing up, leaving him a voicemail and just being this pivotal figure who you just see like, and basically Sondheim inspiring Larson, Larson inspiring Lin-Manuel Miranda, this line goes all the way back. And to have Stephen Sondheim with us until he was 91, you know, it, it's like, the giants of theater were just still walking among the giants of theater. You know, there's one other thing I want to say about Sondheim that I thought was really interesting was this idea of finishing the hat. And you can maybe help me with this, Amy, if you know about it, but this idea about putting your work above all else, right? Um, And that was something that Sondheim, I think, really took as something that he was prideful in, but also I think had regret about. And, you know, it's, it's something that I think comes up a lot in, uh, was it, uh, Sunday in the park with George, this idea of, you know, 
that in a way is the most uh, representative, I think, of Sondheim, especially in that time where it was like, I have to do all of that. I have a compulsion. Uh, you know, I'm going to be inattentive. I'm going to be rude. And it's it's my it's the art's fault because I need to I need to make this thing. And I thought that was a really interesting point of view, because I think oftentimes, especially now, we we talk about artists and and they're always trying to justify how they're normal, how they are just like us. And they, you know, they just happen to do this. And I think a great artist often puts themselves in this position where they have to not be a great person and not have a great life because they are so consumed by what they wanted to do. And I know I'm probably bastardizing this, but it's a really interesting concept that I was reading a lot about in regards to Sondheim. And I, I love that that was something he really led with this idea of like the art before all else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you're right. That comes from Sunday in the park with George, you know, which is about that famous painting by George Sherrod of like the people sitting at the park kind of in profile, that like huge tableau it, that the song about finishing the hat is, you know, like in essence, it is like, I may be a disaster to the people who love me in person and want to be around me in person. But at least today, even if I didn't do anything great in my interpersonal life, I've painted this hat and it is done. And yeah, to write a musical about the guy painting the hat also means, you know, having to shut people out here and there and like having to focus on the work. Because I guess if you don't focus on the work above all else, does the work ever get done? <laughs> I mean, I I don't know how people do it all, to be honest. I have no idea. I think it's kind of impossible too. And I think to acknowledge that is the first step in leading a more full life. I will also say uh, that the one thing that I came into contact with in the last couple of years, and again, through another piece of art, which is Marriage Story, was the Broadway musical Company. I never had, I had heard of Company, but I never got into the lyrics and the songs of Company. And when Adam Driver sang that song at the end of... Uh, a marriage story, I was, I, just, oh, I love this song. It's beautiful. And, you know, pull up my Spotify and then became a huge uh, company fan. And there's a great documentary about the making of company, which was also uh, parodied on documentary. Now uh, there's so, there is so much influence across the board. And I think uh, it, you know, even if you don't go back and watch something, it is good to just read about this person who is a, a a titan of a creative industry. And and at 91, my God, what a great life to live, to to be 91, to still be affecting, you know, like you said, uh, art that is coming out now uh, in every way. And, and I think that's like uh, really, uh, I mean, the, the best legacy you could possibly ever have. And I think, you know, he he definitely, he made it worth it. Like if his art was his number one concern, he he definitely was able to, uh, you know, make amazing art. I mean, now I'm sad about all the people who make art their number one and nobody ever notices. I know. I mean, that's another whole, that's a whole other thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Too depressing. And you know what? Uh, just to kind of quickly get us off track of this for just a second, I will say the reactions to Chicago have been interesting. Um a lot of people seem to really love the musical Chicago and the music of Chicago. I don't see in the Discord that much love of the movie Chicago, although people are like, I liked it when I was in high school. I liked it. I think it's a great entry point musical. I will also admit that I, you know, I think 
uh, I might have overstepped in saying that, you know, Chicago made musicals cool. I think it just made them more accepted in the mainstream. But a lot of people were very quick to point out that Moulin Rouge did that. And I think that's only because I didn't look at a Wikipedia entry to see which came out before that. In my mind, I thought uh, Chicago preceded it. Well, I think there's a difference between the hip and cool. You know, right. Okay. Like that hip means like, oh, yeah, I'm into musicals. I dig them. Cool in that way, I think, means to studio executives, yeah, we can make more of these. I think people like them. We're making money. And okay. Chicago definitely had that impact. I like that. That way I don't have to admit I was wrong. So that's perfect. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Amy, let's uh, take out our cricket bats and let's unspool it. The year is 2001. Following the 9-11 attacks, letters containing anthrax spores are mailed to several news media offices and senators, killing five and infecting 17. Enron files for Chapter 11. Apple releases iTunes and the iPod. Wikipedia launches its first free online encyclopedia, and Napster is ordered to close down. Timothy McVeigh is executed for the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, and the year's films are The Fellowship of the Ring, The Royal Tenenbaums, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, and today's film, Lagan. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Who made it? It's a big, giant film. I know that we'll get into it throughout the film, but... Give me a little taste right now. Lagan. This film is the brainchild of a youngest director at the time, Ashutosh Goarika, uh, Ashu, to his friends. His first two films were flops. His third film felt like his career depended on it. He needed a hit, and Lagan was his brainstorm. It was a film that went against the grain of the modern Bollywood blockbuster, which we will get into more on that later. Replacing this kind of like glitzy, semi-westernized film that had been like taking root in Bollywood with complete about face, period piece, sports movie, political themes, musical, this mashup that took the country by surprise. It's the story of a high stakes cricket game in 1893 during the occupation of India by the British Empire. And there's this British captain. He's a real jerk. He makes this deal to a desperately poor village under his thumb that, um, you know, I know you guys have been suffering this years long drought. Tell you what, if you beat me and my soldiers in a cricket game, you don't have to pay taxes for three years. But if you lose, you have to pay triple taxes this year. And by the way, none of you guys even know how to play cricket. So... In this village, only one villager is crazy enough to take that bet on behalf of the area, which makes him seen as a dangerous rebel, crazy person, leader, and possibly sports hero. Uh, That villager is named Bhuvan. Bhuvan winds up in a love triangle between a local girl named Gari and one of the captain's sisters, Elizabeth. And Bhuvan is played by Indian superstar Amir Khan, a man who he's basically the way to describe him. is he's, he's just like the biggest things of all of our movie stars here. Like as an actor, Amir Khan has had like the box office success of Tom Cruise as a producer. He has films with like the moral stakes of the stuff that Brad Pitt and George Clooney have been doing as a talent, as kind of like an aloof artist talent. He's a little bit Marlon Brando. Like he refuses to go to any of any of the Indian Oscars because he doesn't take those awards seriously. Um, but speaking of the Oscars, he took our Oscars very seriously. And does it win? Well, that's just one of those things you'll have to hold your breath for, like the cricket game of that takes up the very last half of this almost four hour movie. But here's some suspense. The nominees for this year's best foreign language film come from five different countries on three different continents. 
there's a film from Norway <laughs> in the official <laughs> language of Norwegian. <laughs> there's one from France with French dialogue. There's one from India and Bosnia and one from Argentina, which are all the official languages of Los Angeles. <laughs> the nominees are... From France, Amélie, Jean-Pierre Genet. From Norway, Elling, Petterness. From India, Lagan, Ashutosh, Gowariker. From Bosnia and Herzegovina, No Man's Land, Danis Tanovich. From Argentina, Son of the Bride, Juan Jose Campanella. So, high stakes, high stakes, high stakes for the villagers, high stakes for Lagan, high stakes for the potential of musicals, because this came out around the time of last week's film, Chicago, and all eyes were on, is the musical making a comeback? Is this one of the ripples that might let us know that this genre is here? Uh, the soundtrack of Lagan actually is one of the major, major classics of India. It's done by A.R. Rahman, familiar name here. He'd go on to win an Oscar for Slumdog Millionaire, but that will happen later. Uh, when Lagan comes out on June 15th, 2001, the number one song in the box office charts was also from the soundtrack of a musical. It's a little ditty that took the world by storm in Moulin Rouge. I'm talking about Lady Marmalade. a lot of Moulin Rouge in this period when I go back, Paul. Yeah, Moulin Rouge definitely seems to affect so many people. And I think about that. And I think about this time where it seems like the movie musical has a rebirth in this era here. You know, we're talking about South Park or Moulin Rouge and Chicago. You know, all these movies are coming out there legitimizing the musical in a way that I feel like when I was growing up, it wasn't really there except for Disney films. Or, you know, it didn't feel like it was as popular as a conversation point. But these films made it cool. And I want to make sure that in the series, we are trying to cover a lot of different area. So we don't just talk about one type of movie musical or movie musicals made in one time frame. I know. God, I'm so t- I want to I could see a version of this like miniseries where we just do all like amazing musicals from the 70s. Oh, my but God. But that is interesting what you're saying. Like As you were talking about that especially going after your like very depressing intro about what was happening in 2001. It's got me thinking, you know, like back in classic Hollywood in the Fred and Ginger era, musicals had this huge surge, either that was attributed in part to, of course, like having the ability to even like have sound and film and people being Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, we can make a musical. But also as a reaction to the Great Depression, that people were so pinched and scared and frustrated and nervous that they wanted to escape into like pure, pure fantasy. And so musicals became like this great outlet of a way of getting rid of like your troubles of the day, putting them very far away. Like people in the Great Depression decided, you know, they did not want to see movies about what it was like to be poor. They wanted to see movies about like beautiful glittery costumes and like wild, beautiful stuff. 
And maybe the maybe the singers and dancers were poor and they became rich, or maybe the singers and dancers were poor and gutsy and they like got to dive into this like crazy musical world. But the point was getting to this like you know, transitional state to like being sort of beyond the norm. And I wonder, like, I mean, that was the early two thousands were a miserable time for America, and to see that the musical is starting to bubble up again, I wonder if there could be any connection. And I wonder if the connection is in the reception rather than the production, right? Because when this comes out, or when these films come out, people, that's the perfect level of escape. So then more are made, right? Would these have been as successful if we weren't in the middle of what was going on in 2001? I don't know. Could be a very different thing. Uh, so I, I believe that those types of reactions are important too. You know, uh, a movie that may not have been a hit under different circumstances comes out and rises above the rest. Um, Or Chicago sweeping the Oscars and being such a big deal encourages more people to think that there's like glitz and money and and attention to be found in making them. Like, that's what I love about film criticism is like analyzing the response to movies as much as the movies themselves, you know, because then you really do get to see what people are curious about. Well, which is interesting to go back and a lot of the conversations we have when we talked about like Pauline Kael, her re-reviews of films or Roger Ebert, their re-review. Like, how does it stand the test of time after, you know, I've seen it the first time, my knee-jerk reaction versus the the legacy reaction. And I think it, it's interesting to reflect on film like that because I think we've all had movies that we've seen and maybe not cared for and then it clicks and you get it. And a lot of times it's just ahead of its time, or maybe you were in a weird headspace too. So it is interesting to see also the films that are not good, that get so many accolades and then fade away very quickly, right? Like the the movies that we all, I I know I'm going to bang this drum a million times and I won't stop, but I do believe that besides the technology of Avatar, it's not one of our classic films, but the energy around Avatar made it feel like it was going to be the next Wizard of Oz. And, and and as a matter of fact, in this time that Avatar has come out to where Avatar is going, you know, two and three, are we done with 3D technology? Because that was a moment in cinema, you know, again, uh, in 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 this t- period of time. So I'm, I'm, I'm always kind of fascinated by... You know, what gets a pass, what gets critically uh, lauded versus what has staying power. And I think that was a great example of that last week with Chicago. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I feel like part of why Chicago got so many awards is because of the novelty of it. That like here were serious dramatic actors and actresses that we didn't see as musical stars suddenly being musical stars. The way that like Andrew Garfield is actually in um, Tick, Tick, Boom. He's great. Like he's a really great singer. In that film, like I didn't know that Andrew Garfield could even sing. I knew he won a Tony for being in Angels in America, but you like suddenly have this talent that you've like, you know, been invested in through being like a Superman, through being, you know, in the social network. Oh, yeah. Spider-Man. Sorry. Whatever. Um, (laughs) Superman made a better analogy. Like it, it sounded better. Yeah. He'll be a Superman eventually, probably. I mean, isn't that the future? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. Like this idea, like we are, it's a new shiny toy. I think a lot of times that's why certain movies work because we don't know these people and we're excited to see them. And other times it's about somebody doing something so different than what we're used to seeing 
that becomes so exciting. I mean, we could talk about Tom Cruise all the time in the sense of when he did something so different in Magnolia, I think people were like, oh my God, he's a good actor. But I know you and I would both argue that I think he's an exceptional actor who doesn't get necessarily a lot of props for being as good of an actor as he is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, But it made people see him differently because the character was a very different point of view or very aggressive departure for him. Totally. And the reason that I like compared Amir Khan to Tom Cruise is because there was that period in the 80s and 90s where Tom Cruise would follow his passions and wherever his passions led him, whatever film he thought was the most interesting to do because of like the actors or the other talent involved or the director, probably first and foremost, that film would become a hit. Like as a star, he had the power to make any script a yeah. hit, which is a rare talent that does not exist. I feel like that much anymore. And that breaks my heart. Amir Khan is like that on maybe even a bigger scale. Like Amir Khan is a guy who made a film that, boom, burst all the Indian box office records, became like the top grossing Indian film of all time. And he did that once, then twice. He broke his own record third, fourth, five, six, six times. Amir Khan has like become the star of the top grossing Indian film ever of all time at that time. That is the clout that this guy had. And so Lagan comes out right when he's in the point that Tom Cruise actually was in the mid-90s, where he says, you know, I want to produce my own films. I want to start my own production company. I have no idea what my first film is going to be. Tom Cruise sifts, you know, through all of the world and he decides on Mission Impossible. He's like, I've never done an action film. I think that this will be a really interesting property that I could do. And I won't be like selling my soul. It'll still be kind of a smart film. And Amir Khan sifts through the world and finally... Somewhat reluctantly at first settles on Lagan, a movie that was like super not trendy at all. But the director was like, I really think this will work. I really need you to do it. And the director finally told Amir Khan, he's like, listen, go home, tell your parents the story that I have come up with. This story that I'm going to pretend is true. It's not really that true. Uh about like these mean British people and this like scrappy Indian team and all of these villagers who come together. And when Amir Khan told that story to his parents, they started to cry. And he said, "Okay, you're right. I'm going to produce this movie. I think this movie really does have something. And it did. I think what's interesting about this film is it has all the trappings of a biopic, but it's not. I didn't know it wasn't a biopic until after the film when they say, oh, and and this man's name was lost to history. I was like, oh, this didn't really happen. And I think very rarely... But it acts like it, right? It acts like chariots of fire or something. A hundred percent. And I think what's so interesting about that is we often don't see epic films like this that can take up this much space that don't, you know, hold true on some level or based on something that is uh, a part of culture that we know. You know, I'm thinking about like Lawrence of Arabia. Like, is that the truest of true stories? I don't know, but it is at least based there and then we can go off and, you know, make it into more of a film. And this movie definitely feels like that. It is expansive. It is beautiful. It is giant. I mean, and in many ways, as much as this film is a musical, it's also a sports movie. I mean, this is a four-hour film, roughly, where... For 90 minutes, 90 minutes plus, you're watching a cricket game. Like, I don't know anything about cricket. I, I don't know. 
I, I, I think I was trying to figure out the rules as it was going on. I was like, I get this, I get that. But for a movie like this to break off into another type of film uh, and then hold a game for 90 minutes. I mean, I think Space Jam made hold the game for 45 <laughs> minutes, right? Uh, but Space Jam won. Um, this, it it's such uh, an amazing feat of directing to make simply a game that engrossing. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of blown away with this movie in so many different ways. And I think it is the mix of... Of everything. It feels like it's a biopic. It's also a sports movie. It's also a musical. It's also about underdogs. I mean, it. there are so many ways into this film. It's a love story. I mean, the love story is a hugely central part of this. It, it has a little bit of everything. So for a four-hour movie, and I know there's a lot of long-ass movies out there, it often doesn't have all these elements. And I think that's why it feels long. But when you watch a movie like this it doesn't feel as long because there's so many islands to keep on jumping to and keeping you entertained. And just when you think you get one thing, you're in another world right away. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the things that Roger Ebert wrote about this movie when he gave it a glowing review is he was using this movie as a way of kind of introducing Bollywood cinema to his readers. And he said, you know, Bollywood has always struck a bargain with its audience members, many of them poor. You get your money's worth. And leaving Lagan, I did not feel unsatisfied or vaguely shortchanged after many right. Hollywood, as I do after Hollywood films. I felt satisfied. I had seen a movie. And I think one way into kind of grappling with like this not historical, somewhat historical, wannabe historical, like epic tone of it is kind of hinted to in the subtitle of the film. You know, it's called Lagan, Once Upon a Time in India. And that title, right? We have like already... We have Once Upon a Time in the West, those kind of like right. that epic type of spaghetti Western that Sergio Leone did. We had in the 90s in China, Once Upon a Time in China, you know, a, a similar story of like good right. and bad of like imperialism of the British kind of invading China and the people who rebelled against it. And then Lagan is kind of telling the same story in India, you know, like Once Upon a Time in India, again, like the local people rebelling against the British, figuring out how to like- By the way. You're, le- you're leaving back out their a big country's one. History. Oh, I'm about to get there. All right. But uh, but I do think it is important to kind of say that like Lagan was the first Bollywood film released in China, and I think because of that kind of connection of like you told your story about the British, we're telling our story about the British. Yeah. And then yeah, Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh He's like, no, I you did. That is what were you thinking? No, Once Upon a Time in America. Oh well, yeah, right. Once Upon a Time in America too. <laughs> it is a genre of film that feels almost like a novel in the way it's presented. It spans uh, a very important period of time that where things change or where you're watching the evolution and growth. I think maybe the Quentin Tarantino one, you're watching the evolution of, you know, a character, a, a character caught in between the old and the new but these other films that we talked about are much more expansive. They are like, they are these giant books. Like the way I think about James Michener books about Alaska, uh, you know, it's like that, that way idea. Way to name check my favorite guy. <laughs> no, no, but I think even Once Upon a Time in Hollywood does the same thing. It's like, it allows you to take this moment in history that you find really important and tell kind of this grand scale fairy tale about it, where you right. could write the things that weren't righted in the past. You know, the, that the British, you know, occupied India for like decades after this film takes place. Lots of more misery happened. But here in this once upon a time fantasy, 
spoiler alert, the villagers get to win at the end of a Which, really intense cricket game. Spoiler alert, like Manson loses, you know, like right. spoiler Which, alert, you get to like decide the history that you wished that you had had. And there's something really interesting about this beyond that. First of all, I didn't know who was going to win or lose. I really went back and forth. <laughs> I was like, oh, I could see a world where they came really close and I could see a world where like next time we'll get them, you know. But I also felt that this movie was very pointed about the cast system. You know, there's a very big moment in the film where they're trying to find another player for the team and they find this untouchable. And every player on the team that has been practicing and working to be a part of this cricket unit basically decides to leave. We are not going to play with this untouchable. We are not going to do that. He will wreck it for us because we can't associate. And, you know, our lead character, our Tom Cruise, makes this speech about the ridiculousness of that. And I thought that was a really powerful moment in a movie that comes out in 2000 because the cast system is still very much a play in India. Um, there's a great book uh, that I just read uh, a little while ago by Isabel Wilkerson called Cast, and it, she uses India very much as her touchstone throughout. So I, I felt like I learned a little bit more about the current cast system in India. So to have a film in 2000 where your Tom Cruise character is saying, this is bullshit, like this is not right, we don't support this, was really interesting to me because, as you're saying, we're righting the wrongs here. This would have potentially changed the course of India if, you know, this untouchable helped free this community. Like, you know, what effects, what ripple effects could it have? I mean, clearly the movie does treat itself as a true story and says that everyone really forgets about this. But I did think that was really a powerful moment there to stand against that. Yeah, I mean, that narrative choice is kind of why I likened Amir Khan as a producer to somebody like Brad Pitt, you know, with his like plan B type of films that he makes. Mm -hmm. And George Clooney, he's like very much in real life a social activist. And so to include this like bit about the untouchable where his character makes a big point of like touching him, you know, putting right. his arms on him. The whole village is like at one point standing, staring at them from far away. And he's like, I have my arm on this man. And it's a really big moment in the script that, you know, the actor who played the untouchable, um, Aditi Alakia, like during the shooting of the film, he actually kept away from the rest of the cast because like he wanted to get into the mind of being like this pariah. And this is a five and a half month long shoot. So that's a really long time to be like pariahing yourself. First cut of the movie, seven hours plus. Yeah. 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 I mean, but to be fair, a cricket game is like three days long. You could I did make not this movie. realize that. I did not realize yeah. that until this movie said that. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I know. Cricket is insane. We have to get into the whole cricket of it later. But yeah. So um, Aditi Alakia, who plays this untouchable, like one of the reasons that his character's on the team, of course, if you've seen it, is that he has an arm that's, you know, a little bit dis disformed, like it's bent up by his hand, mm -hmm. which is actually inspired by a real cricket player whose name is like Bagwath Chandrasekhar. He had polio when he was a child. And because his limbs were a little bit bent, he became like a spin bowler. He was really great because you couldn't control how he was going to throw the ball when he was pitching it. That's why, of course, like uh, Amir Khan's character makes a big push that this guy has to be on the team. He's like the best pitcher because nobody can understand how he'll throw. And when that scene came out at the time, like it was one of those moments that kind of reminds me 
you know how like Disney tries to get all that credit right now? Like, look, our characters are, you know, queer. They're in a relationship. Mm -hmm. Like they're holding hands for two seconds in the background. You know, that kind of a thing. Right. Where you get all this like publicity for doing something to to take your culture forward on film to try to represent it. Or like how here in the 90s, we had so many films starring like LGBTQ characters as a way of saying like, we are telling these stories even though looking back, you're like, okay, but you're telling those stories with like straight actors and it's a little bit murky. That's kind of exactly what this was in like all of the best and worst ways, you know, like it's what like that, this, this untouchable moment in the film is one of those like Oscar-y Beatty kind of things for India. And now people look back on it as a little bit like, okay, a touch over the top, like, like the character's name Kashra, that means like trash, which is something that we wouldn't realize but like to have a character named trash in the film is kind of considered not to have like aged well but at the time the film came out it was like remarkable it was that sort of oscar baitery thing that makes you understand why it got so much attention well i also feel like this movie does something interesting and you know walk me through this in a way where i'm not going to embarrass myself in saying it but i do think it really highlights so many things that you can get behind. One, which is everybody in the village plays a part, no matter what their skill level is. And we just talked about the untouchable. And, you know, at first you might think, oh, this person has um, a disability that wouldn't allow them to be able to be an effective member of the cricket team. But that actually proves to be, you know, his his power. Then you see older uh, members of the of the village stepping up to bat, and they're acknowledged as being old and unable to do some of the things that you need to do in cricket. So they bring in a child to help be a part of that. Like there is something about these tropes in a grand film like this uh, that it didn't bother me because I think it feels so epic that you can you can actually embrace larger stereotypes because we're telling something that is so bold and no totally and and even beyond all of that like inside the team itself in addition to the untouchable you have like a Sikh character you have Muslim and Hindu yeah. characters like also playing on the same team getting along it is a utopian kind of vision of like what what they what India should be according to like Amir Khan like a more accepting place I mean Amir Khan himself is like a Muslim actor married to a to a Hindu woman and so, yeah, like it's it's a political statement in a film that feels really kind of sweet and charming and funny and lovable. Yeah. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of this love story, because I think that this love story also might fall into the trappings of. Is it baiting? Is it unrealistic? Like, what are we what are we talking about here? Because here's this woman who is an upper crust British woman who falls for this man who is a villager, like very much different statuses, which we've seen in countless films, but the man stands with his village over her. Like he's not wooed by her, even though she is, she is so smitten with him, but to stay with his village just strengthens that idea of nationality. And, and you know, this idea that we are, we are stronger together. It's just, it's a constant throbbing heartbeat throughout this entire film. No, it's true. Like that dynamic between, you know, Elizabeth, the girl from London who just arrives to like live with her brother and Bouvan. I mean, 
they're meet cute, right? Where they're like trying to talk to each other for the first time and she needs to call her translator over and the translator is trying to figure out if he'll get in trouble for translating things that might make his boss, like the captain, angry. And, you know, they're trying to even figure out each other's name. There's that scene that I feel like we've seen in other films where she's trying to pronounce his name and screwing it up, you right. know, right here. And we're Bhuvan. Well, fan. No, no, Bhuvan. Bhuvan. But what I thought was so novel about this scene is it doesn't just end with like, you know, sort of loving joke about white lady can't pronounce this guy's name. It goes to him at the end being like, what was her name? That name, Elizabeth, that's so fucked up. I'm not even going to try. And I yeah. thought that was hilarious. He's like, you know what? This like mutual back and forth. My culture is the primary culture. I'm not going to bend too much to yours. You can bend to me. That's fine. And I, I respected that sense of place. I thought that was very cool. You say, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but that kind of relationship in general, like the idea of, you know, a British woman falling for an Indian man. I, is that something that is commonplace? Is that something that's rare? Like what what is the makeup here in Indian films, because I, I also know that there's a lot of facts at play, you know, as far as the culture of India, too. So I don't know what is acceptable, what's breaking the norms, or, you know, what what was going on there. Well, I thought what really struck me as being kind of special about this dynamic was that Elizabeth isn't like mean, rich lady, semi-villain. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that right. character easily could have done a, a heel turn where it's like there's we have love triangles where it's like the snobby rich girl who gets what she wants versus like the lovable village girl who right. struggles. Like and if they, she was rebuked, then she'd be like, I'm rooting against you. Forget it. You know, it's like that. Like, you know, you could see exactly. her turning. That's almost the more common plot point. Right. But it doesn't yeah. happen here. She like kind of stays sweet and gets her heart broken. But there was a version of this movie where, um, you know, when she goes up to him and she tells him that she loves him, but she tells him it in English. So he doesn't understand. Yes. Yeah. There was a scene they shot where she learns how to say I love you in Hindi and tells him that she loves him in Hindi and that he knows that she loves him and then um, still doesn't wind up with her at the end. It kind of like gives her that like polite goodbye, you know, farewell at the very end as she's like going away with her brother. And when they first screened that version for audiences, the women like hated it. At the test screening, they were like, I hate Bhuvan. He was way too mean to her. How could he know that she loved him and like not acknowledge it and continue ignoring her in all ways? So they had to snip out the scene where she told him that she loved him just so you didn't absolutely hate the hero at the end. What I also love about this character, or at least the way the film was directed, and there's so many interesting things about this film. And first, this is the first Bollywood film that's not 80 yard. They actually synced sound on this movie. And this is 2001. So to think about that it is wild. Um, you know, that like every film before this was 80 yard, which meant that actors would come into a booth and record their dialogue, you know, to the film. Um, the other dubbed, you would say, um, the other version of this that I thought was really interesting was it's the first time they ever employed an assistant director. There was no assistant director on an Indian film before this, which is amazing. But more to the point of the film and what the film does is they break apart, or at least in my opinion, an American musical and a Bollywood musical. Because when she is singing and she is in love with him, I feel like that was very much a parody of 
an American princess in a tower, very Disney, you know, to the sun and to the sky or to the moon and to the sky, you know, singing about her love where you were juxtaposing that with the the villagers song, which was incredibly different and musically different and uh, and performed differently. Did you did you pick up on that or is that just me? Well, yeah, like what struck me about all of her scenes when she's like singing to herself and kind of running around with that like big red, like gauzy veil and then going from that into like the um, the dance number where like she's dancing at a ball. And as she's dancing at this ball, you can kind of imagine her thinking like, man, when I was like back in the village and they were dancing last night, that was so much more fun. That was so cool. This ball is kind of stuffy. What was cracking me up is I feel like they deliberately made that actress um her name is Rachel Shelley I feel like they made her up to look like Belle from Beauty and the yes, Beast yes did you exactly. have the same thought she's yes. in the same dress she's got the same haircut I feel like they looked at Beauty and the Beast and were like we're taking that character and putting it here for the musical numbers for that's the costume exactly, for the dress yes. that's exactly what I saw yeah that's so crazy yeah like it's almost like saying you know Beauty and the Beast like poor Belle like what if Belle didn't wind up in love is what happens to this character yeah. in the film You know, she's like curious and adventurous and looking for something to do and, you know, open um, and has her heart in the right place because she knows her brother's a dick. But sorry, Belle, like in this case, you just go home alone and you never get married again, which I thought was really harsh that they're like, by the way, she was so in love with this man that she knew for a couple of weeks that she never, ever loved. Never, ever again. I mean, it was it it. It, but it also showed like so much power for him. Like it was like, this man is so, you know, he's got everything. You can't, you can't even consider love after this. So, yeah, it was like really interesting to me. <laughs> I know. I mean, from the way that he's like introduced in this movie, right? Yeah. Because like first we show up at this town, you know, and we're kind of looking around and we're getting this like landscape version of like, here's what's happening. Like, this village is under the, the thumb of the Raja. The Raja is under the thumb of the British. The British are under the thumb of the Queen. Like there's all these like escalating rows of ownership of this village that seem to have yeah. nothing to do and no way of helping the local people who are like starving and hungry and really need rain. And then, you know, they're kind of like wandering around and complaining and having fights about chickens. And you get to meet like all of these people right at the beginning. And it holds out on showing you Bouvan until all of a sudden he kind of like pops up in the forest and he looks to me kind of like Charlie Sheen in Vietnam or something like that. Right. Like the British are hunting deer and he's there not to like hunt the deer himself, but to like keep scaring the deer so the British can't hunt the deer and to be like this anti-hunter hunter, which I thought was just a really great introduction. Honestly, you're just sort of like, whoa, this guy's brave, but he also won't kill anything. It's a very interesting character because he's sensitive. He's sweet. He is incredibly uh, romantic, but yet he is also athletic. Like he is, he is the he is perfect. Maybe I wouldn't get married if I ever flirted with him. I don't know. I mean, maybe the, you know, maybe they got they they were right about that. <laughs> I mean, one of the kind of heartbreaking things about it, though, is like as as that actor Amir Khan is making this movie, his wife is his producer. It's the first time she's ever produced a movie. She doesn't have like a producing background, but she really kind of plunges in and is like producing it. But I don't have any idea how any of this happened. Um, There's a few years of space. That assistant director that you mentioned, who was like the Mm -hmm. first assistant director, um, 
She was a, a woman. She loans Amir Khan her earrings to like get into character as Bouvan. Those hoop earrings that he's uh-huh. wearing are actually just like the assistant director's earrings that she thought would look perfect on him. And years later, oh, no. they wind up getting married and they're oh. still together. So I don't know what the behind scenes love triangle was, but there was definitely one happening. Oh, wow. But now, Amy, I will say that many people view this movie as one of the best sports movies of all time. And maybe it should have been in our sports uh, movie series. But I also think what makes it unlike a sports film is that the musical is throughout. And it is important. And it helps develop so much. We talked last week a lot about songs that don't really show you the interior monologue. It, It kind of is telling you the story without really showing you what people are, I don't know, going deeper than than we already know, I feel like, right? It was sort of like, here's what we assume, and the song is basically on that level. Here, I feel like the songs do so many interesting things and the way they juxtapose the songs and the way that a song works so much better the night before the final day of the big match than a bunch of people you know, sitting around being anxious. Like, it, like that's a beautiful moment to, sh- to break into song because how else can you show that? Yeah. I mean, Amir Khan was kind of nervous about including musicals numbers even in this from the beginning because he was like, you know, this is like a hard-edged story. Can we even fit them in? And, you know, the writers who, like, helped Ashley with the script, they were like, I think we can fit in six or seven songs But what we have to do to make them special is we have to make sure that these songs are all like telling important story points, because sometimes there is like a, you know, a thing in a musical where like you're singing a song about how happy you are, but it doesn't do that too much to like advance the plot. But here they tried to make a real point of like every song we sing has to keep carrying this narrative forward because they're worried in a four hour film, you wouldn't have room for like six songs. And so that is kind of one of the things that makes this musical feel like it stands out even at the time. But yeah, I want to talk about maybe the first song even and kind of how the first song starts, which is like these villagers are here. We're seeing everybody. And then one of the guys who's like on the team eventually who only communicates through playing the drums looks Mm -hmm. up in the sky and he sees these clouds roll and he starts to just like beat the drums, like beat the drums, beat the drums. I mean, Listen to this and picture this guy looking at the sky and these this epic CG cloud rolling in. And did you not think like, man, I bet you five bucks George Miller saw this when he did Mad Max. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you know, now that you say it, now I can't get it out of my mind. (laughs) Right? And the way that the director kind of staged this, I thought was cool because like Amir Khan was waiting to be told in the rain dance number, like, where am I going to stand? And uh, Ashu basically told him like, go stand in the corner, kind of in the back. And he was like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm the star of this movie. Like I'm producing this movie. Shouldn't I be in the center? I'm the only person that people are here to see. You know, the girl who plays his love interest is like a newer actress. Most of the villagers were more like theater actor types. They weren't movie star types, but he's the giant movie star. So he's like, what do you mean I'm going to be in the corner and not in the middle of the picture? 
And the director was like, listen, you haven't stood forth yet as like a leader to this town. You're not important to this town. You haven't earned being in the center of the frame as far as this, as this town is concerned. And so for this musical number and this dance number to carry the plot of the film, you're going to be in the corner. We're going to watch you emerge and be the guy who gets to be in the center of the dance numbers. I really love that idea because it almost takes the concept of the entire film and and articulates it there in a musical number, which is someone can rise. Anyone can rise. It's not all about one person. And it's, you know, the world doesn't revolve around this one person. In many respects, everyone supports each other. Like, you know, his drive is important, but without the world behind him, you know, he's not basically the lone problem solver, which if we're talking about Tom Cruise and the problem with Mission Impossible was my issue with the first Mission Impossible, which is like, you're doing a movie about Mission Impossible, you kill off the whole team and then you work by yourself. That's not Mission Impossible. You got to have a team. <laughs> got to have the IMF team. Come on, man. And he learned that lesson. Um, yeah, that's true. I mean, without the whole team, I guess you're just like Ethan Impossible. Like, yeah, Ethan can do anything. Like, it's me, Mr. Ethan Impossible. Yeah. I'm the hero. To only have six songs on the soundtrack and to have them all be considered bangers, bangers in different ways even, I think is really special. Mm -hmm. That big number um, that I think is my favorite, the workout one, where all the guys are getting together and they're like running up the stairs, you know, and the music's kind of sounding like this. I mean, essentially that song is still like a workout song. So it's like the eye of the tiger of workout songs of Bollywood movies, which amazing. And then the song that they sing later on, where they're like kind of summoning the power of protection, you know, saying we really do need the gods to look out for us as we go into this game. That song, Opalanhari, really resurfaced again, you know, just a year and a half ago during COVID. It became one of the COVID anthems of India. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is a soundtrack that just has meant so many things to so many people because the songs all serve such a different, unique purpose. Like, I mean, the most of the drama of this movie is like getting the team together, is like getting the town behind it because it's the bad town is bears. Yeah. The town thinks he's crazy. The town is not at all like on board with this idea of like, we're going to have to pay triple tax this year because like you have a hot head and like couldn't back down from this guy who's like challenging you to a cricket game. Well, but I also feel like he was standing up for the village being like, you can't take advantage of us anymore. And that was like a very big deal, you know, like he was the only one that was going to speak, you know, truth to power, you know, in that way. Yeah, because there's all these like levers of power, right? You know, you would want to think that the Raja, who's like technically in control as like their king, you know, the Raja being the guy who gets to like enter cricket matches riding like a heavily decorated elephant, that the Raja will protect them. But the Raja we see right away is like stuck in his own awful position where like the British are bossing him around 
And basically this whole event happens because like the mean captain who basically has, has like the craziest mustache matched only by the other mustaches of the other British people on his team. Mustaches that like almost touch in the corners and are all pointy and crazy and evil. He tries to get the Raja to eat meat. The Raja, yes. which Love at first I secrets. thought that was just like kind of a subtle neg. Like he sits down, the Raja sitting in front of a plate of meat and he refuses to put any on his plate. And I thought that was just going to be like a subtle character beat about how like the British people weren't even aware of his culture enough to to consider feeding him vegetarian food. But then it becomes this plot point. He's like, if you don't eat this meat, I'm going to raise these taxes. And then raising these taxes means this whole game starts to happen. People start yelling the word cricket all the time, which I just have to hear them yell cricket because I think it's funny. Cricket. But then, of course, when the movie comes out, too, people are like, that's a little a historical because as kindly, if ineffective as this Raja is, like the actual Rajas of this time were a bit more assholeish to their people. Like they actually did right. eat meat. They actually had their own hunting preserves that the villagers weren't allowed to go on and they would hunt their own food. So they're like, it's a bit of a saintly passive Raja. Our Rajas kind of suck. But I think that is also... Some of the nationalism of the movie, like poor Raja, like our Rajas would have helped us if they could. Right. It, it, I think it's it's rewriting history to make everybody to take off all the blemishes, you know, and I think it's it's sort of what we're at war with right now, you know, in our country where we're talking about, well, to truly appreciate who we are as America, we have to look at all the people that we stepped on and and we have to look at all the warts underneath the stories that we tell because those warts are what makes our country great in many respects you know the 1619 project like we understand one version or we were taught in one in school this very clean version of how you know how America was built in the 1619 project you know really is this way to reconceive Without, I think it's without taking it apart. It's a saying, but no, but you have to acknowledge everyone who played a part, you know, and this, this is definitely playing more into a very simplistic nationalist view. Everyone is nice. Everyone is good. Everyone has something to add. And I think there's something really empowering about it. I think that's very sports movie as well. I wanted to say that one of the things about this movie, which is interesting and, you know, the title seems so you know, beautiful Lagan. But I think in India, that basically just means taxes. Yeah, it just means taxes. So it's like yeah. taxes, the story of India. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you can hear it here. I mean, there's like dramatic anti-tax chants. I mean, right here, they're being right. like, let's abolish this tax, but it sounds like epic. Yeah, Taxes. Taxes, the musical. There's so much to unpack here about the film. I want to go back to the musical uh, element of it for a second and just talk about the choreography because the choreography here was really interesting. I felt like when I was watching it, the moves felt naturalistic. Now, I understand like we're watching highly produced pieces, but there was something about the way that everyone moved in tandem. And maybe it was coming off of Chicago. It just felt... Uh, very unique to me. And and not like, oh, I just am not used to this kind of, you know, Bollywood dancing. It just, there was something about it that felt of the time and it didn't stop the movie to do a dance number that was incongruous 
to the film, if that makes sense. We talked about that a little bit in Greece. We talked about that a little bit in Chicago. But here I felt like it was integrated into the world's better. The, the same way that, you know, it felt like Belle was in the tower waiting for her love. Like that was integrated more into the film. It, it felt more natural. Yeah, it actually felt, actually to me, it felt a little Greece, the movements. You know, they mm-hmm. felt kind of casual. Oh yeah, the movements, yes. Yeah, like, the, yeah, you're right. Just the actual physical movements of this kind of people working sort of in tandem, but not like lockstep perfect. Right. That I liked that about it. It felt Honestly, I kept thinking about all the other films in our series watching this. I'm like, here we have all these villagers getting together in the purpose of something that felt very nightmare before Christmas to me. Like villagers kind of getting amped behind like one man's vision. Mm. But the actual looks, I, I appreciate that casualness. Where I, where I think the musical numbers work is that like one of the musical numbers kind of when he, when Bouvan is convincing people that this cricket game is a good idea, the idea of like getting a a villager to enter the dance, to join the dance, kind of feels like the message of the film. Like, will you join with me in this world where we can do better? You know, if dance is this way of like transporting yourself or buying into like a fantasy or like leaving behind what you think you know to try for something like bigger or greater, that's exactly what is happening to the villagers as they like begin to join Bouvan in dancing. He's like saying, can't we dream of a better version of life for this village? Can't we dream of not having to pay taxes or like we can even win a cricket game. And so to enter the dance number is to say, you know what, maybe you have a point. Like maybe I can believe in a future that you're saying we could achieve. And I think that's such a beautiful synergy of like plot and dance number of the point of a dance number. You know, to say, like, why not live bigger? I like that. And I think why I like that is also because we don't have a number from the British, right? Like we have it from the woman. And I think that that's a very concerted effort. And I I think it's not about this is not a musical. This is about like in many ways, it's about them doing this thing. So I like the separation there. I also like how a lot of the scenes with the British actors are in English. There's a very concerted effort to keep them separate. You know, even in the way they watch the game, everyone's on one side or the other. And I feel like that was a very interesting idea to keep them, uh, you know, keep those movies almost independent. So when you were watching the British scenes, if you're Indian and you don't speak English, you would maybe feel a little bit more uneasy about it. Like, you know, like I thought that was a really cool way of doing something. That is true. I mean, whenever the British start talking English to each other, you can kind of hear the narrator get antsy and just start talking over the the English dialogue and being like, okay, 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 okay. Let me tell you what's happening in this conversation. I don't want you to have to read subtitles, you know, which kind of comes out of like the director Ashu being nervous that a lot of the Bollywood audience is illiterate and he didn't want to shut anybody out of that. But he also used more British people than had ever been used in a film um, at this point in Bollywood. Because usually when you have like white characters show up in Bollywood films, the kind of like lazy stereotype, you just go to like Goa or grab whatever local tourist from England happens to be there. And you're like, hey man, do you want to be in a movie? But Ashu uh, was like, you know, I actually want real actors for this. And so they went to London, they did a full on talent scout. Like the main two actors that they got here, um, Rachel Shelley and Paul Blackthorne, who plays like the evil captain, they spent six months studying Hindi so that they could learn their lines and kind of keep up with the rest of the cast. But they tried to really put a weight on having those performances be strong, even if they feel a little bit caricaturist to us, like 
They right. tried to make it feel more credible than just like random tourist walks into frame in a soldier's uniform. You know, the troops look like troops. They move like troops. They kind of act like they are genuine soldiers. But yeah, like, I mean, that's all part of like how this film came into theaters with this like epic sense of scale. You've never seen talent like this in a film like ours. You've never seen, you know, scenes of extras where we have like 10,000 extras from the village that we like scooped up that the assistant director and like everybody rounded up to try to like make sure that the hillside looked like full and crowded. I mean, to yeah. get 10,000 people, that's like huge. That that shot is is really like, I think should be discussed in like a in the history of cinema, I mean, that that a thousand people running, like this one chance to get everything going on. You have rain machines, you have all these people, like a full-on stampede is going in here. Like that to me is, it's interesting how segmented, and I think I'm often finding this, like, yes, there are the greats, whether it's like Truffaut or Kurosawa, but you often don't get a a really like, worldwide view of like some of these amazing scenes and that sequence should be spoken about as one of the most you know one of the most amazing scenes in cinema in the sense of what is going on there i mean that is is truly uh you know just a a really perfect scene i mean one take one shot i mean we talk about you know true detective a million times but to have a thousand people running in there no cgi that is really impressive it really is. And when the, you're right, when the water starts flowing, I kept thinking like, man, this is going to be the muddiest dance number. This yeah. is going to be so crazy. And weirdly, there's like this kind of magical story about rain, even with this film, because like in the village where they shot this, those people that you're looking at in that dance number, you know, this town, maybe six months after filming Rats, yes. was devastated by a huge earthquake. I mean, they aren't, they aren't even sure how many people died. Like the estimate is between like 13 and 20,000 people died in wow. this village. The eight-story hotel that all of the actors were staying at while they were making this film totally leveled, turned into rubble. And this huge catastrophe and disaster happening at a period when this whole village still hadn't had any rain itself. So... All of this is going on. And when they take Lagan back to premiere it in this village, when all the actors show up to kind of see like, man, what happened here? How is everybody? And really realize the extent of the devastation. They play the film in a theater. It hadn't rained there in like nine years. And as soon as they step out of the theater afterwards, it starts to rain. And everybody was like, oh my God, like something magical is happening around this film. Like it was a complete freak out moment to have a film that's so much about rain played in an area that had been like suffering disasters. And then it rains when it plays there. It almost feels fictional, but it's a true story that that happened. And, you know, Amir donated a lot of his earnings to those relief efforts in the village uh, that was destroyed too. So it was like, they didn't just up and leave after, you know, after they basically mined this area for their own, you know, success, which I thought was actually very cool as well. I mean, honestly, like the whole time this film comes out is just like crazy, right? Because they decide 
that they're going to do this like big awards push even here in America. And so they take like all of the cast over to America to start like touring around with the movie and do, you know, the press junket tour kind of mm-hmm. stuff where you like show up in a hotel, all the local press shows up, they interview you, they eat food. You're like, oh, let me tell you what it was like making the movie. So they bring everybody to America. They're in Atlanta doing this press tour and 9-11 happens. And it's like, oh my God. And they get stuck here, right? Because there's no flights. So the whole cast gets into these vans and they drive from Atlanta to Houston and they have to live in Houston for three weeks because they can't get out of the country because of all of the panic. Oh, one of the things that's happening while they're all in Houston is there's no healthy vegetarian food around because, you know, Houston in the 2000s. And so all the food they could get to the hotel for a really long time was just breadsticks. And they were living on like... I. In my imagination, I think it's like Little Caesars breadsticks until the local Indian community of Houston got involved and started making vegetarian food to bring by the hotel. But it was like madness. And Amir was actually not with them even at the time. He was in Canada and he was about to fly down to go meet them, but he couldn't. So he got stuck in Canada himself for like weeks because like the border was just chaos here. And then Amir finally decides at the end, like he's just going to stay in America for a while. And he stays here for two months to kind of just like drum up support, try to get Academy members to see the film. I mean, two months, this is like two months of his life trying to do like the Oscar season thing, which is where like they show a screening here at a theater. And like every time you get like 20 people to come see it, 15 people to come see it, Amir Khan, biggest star in India, shaking hands, being like, thank you, 15 people for watching this film. We're really trying to get attention on it for the Oscars. And people were very reluctant to see a four hour film. You know, it's hard. Like four hours in Oscar season is like a lifetime. You know, so these like Oscar voters, like dragging him out, doing everything they but could. But do you to think it would be a lifetime it. if it was with, you know, at this point, you know, Renee Zellweger and, you know, Catherine Zeta-Jones? Would it be the same issue? Maybe. I mean, this town kind of has mental breakdowns during award season. Right. Like, like. I mean, I guess in the two, in 2001, you weren't quite getting like an entire stack of DVDs sent to you every single day like we are that are like, please watch me. Right. But it's crazy. You, I guess you're having to go out every night and like go to screenings. And so yeah. if you want to see movies- It's also just showing you how the voter, system is completely broken because yeah. it's sort of like you're waiting until one part of the year where you feel like this is the time that you, ha-, you know, it's like, it's like, like everything. It's just sort of like an ass backwards way of doing things. Yeah. Everyone sure. sits on their stuff until it's, you know, until it's ready. <laughs> for sure. But, you know, I want to go back and like keep talking to you a little bit more about all of these characters in the village. I had the weirdest sense watching this movie that, not that they made this movie to appeal to Western audiences, but I could see why it appealed to Western audiences in that like so many of the characters of the village seem to kind of pair up with like different archetypes of American comedians. You know, like mm-hmm. there's that crazy um, kind of soothsayer fortune teller guy with Love the insane hair. Every time that guy showed up on screen, I was like, he's just Belushi, right? Like they were like, we I need literally a thought the same thing. I was like, that is Belushi from Animal House. Yeah. It's just like straight Belushi. And I thought maybe I'm being kind of crazy or like too Western centric being like, they told this guy to be Belushi. But I read an interview with the guy who played the drummer and the guy who played the drummer said that the whole time uh, Ashu kept telling him to remember that he was playing Sylvester Stallone. So I think there was like a deliberate right. like nod to different types of characters. Well, it makes sense. I think every great filmmaker has 
a number of films that have influenced them. If you're making a sports movie, then I understand the Rocky analogy. I also understand like the ensemble of Animal House and how Belushi's performance in Animal House transcends language. It's just a physical performance. So I could I could see, you know, maybe they weren't just calling out Belushi, but like there was there were things that you recognize here throughout the entire film. No, you're right. I mean, in a way, I think that that's part of why this movie was the Bollywood movie that the U.S. kind of chose as its Oscar movie is because Mm -hmm. so much of it feels familiar. I mean, to do this kind of like crowd-pleasing historical epic with a movie star at the center of it that gives you a little bit of a light lesson about how to be a better person, like that is completely the type of movie that wins Oscars here. You know, like that movie always goes very far. But then there's this kind of random stuff that I thought was I thought maybe I was going crazy, but like at one point, you know, they're like playing the cricket game and everything is tense. And then this cello kind of comes in and I was like, is that Jaws? Are they just Jawsing this (laughs) cello game? There was another part where they're like talking about the stakes of this cricket game. And I was like, hold on, this feels like Star Wars. I mean, it feels like there's so many bits of the movies that we love in this film, but just like the subtlest nods that maybe as a crazy person, I felt like I was seeing. No, I don't think you're crazy at all. I I totally see all of that. Um, And it's interesting that the villain is very much like one of those high school villains. I mean, the British soldier plays like an 80s villain. Like, you could put him in the Karate Kid and he would fit perfectly. Like, he's a Johnny. He's got the sneer. He's got the look. <laughs> like, you know, he he truly has that very, like, dickish... I mean, Animal... I mean, By the way, Animal House is probably a great example. I wonder... Because, look, Animal House, the tagline for that was, like, the slobs versus the snobs. And you could say, I mean, that's a very, you know... There is a there's a similarity to that. That's true. There is. And that kind of joy that you get in seeing like the snobs get chewed out by their bosses. Like when he yeah. goes and like you could I mean the movie does sort of say, like, well, the the British military weren't all bad. The people above this guy were okay. They kind of actually won bad apple in a way that I think is maybe not cool. But it is nice to hear him get chewed out right here. What would you have us do next? Race horses? Now, this is the most preposterous idea I've ever heard of. Captain Russell, the British Empire cannot function according to the whims and fancies of officers like you. Now, Jolly will understand this. If you win, you will have had a narrow escape. But if you lose, you will pay the taxes for Champana and the entire province out of your own pocket. And then you'll be packed off to Central Africa. Is that clear? Yes, sir. That will be all. You may go. By the way, while they were shooting this film, the British actors did challenge the local actors to a game of cricket. And the British actors like completely killed them. It was it was brutal. I mean, do you feel like you understand cricket any better having watched this movie? Like I was trying I to do. figure out. I, I was even... I was you know what? I, I stopped trying to understand it while I was watching it. And I and then because it was about. 90 minutes, I started to understand it. So I believe the way the cricket works is you have a bowler who throws the ball at you and then you hit, if you hit that ball, you have a chance to run from that one area to the next. It's basically a straight line. And you have like two hitters on at the same time. They have to keep on trading until someone gets out. 
Then there's elements here. There's a lot of times where it's like, well, the ball went here, so you get 64 points. The ball went over here, you get 12 points. That I don't know any yeah. of the nitty gritty of. The score but is I like just, 323 to two. I'm like, what is happening? But basically what I got was it was, if I'm to Americanize it, it's like baseball where the pitcher pitches to you, you run to first base, and then the person who's on first base runs back home and then hits again, and then you run back to first. You know, it's a constant back and forth between first base and home plate, first base and home plate, right? Or is that, yeah, maybe I'm no, now I maybe think wrong. You're right. I think you're right. I think it's that, but it takes place kind of like, it's like pizza baseball. It's like right. that little strip of action takes place in the center of a round field. So that like, what if the, it's like, what if baseball had the pitcher in the middle of a circle and you could right. hit the ball behind you and that's also okay because there's people behind you who can still throw the ball and like get you out. But then the thing that it has that's even more hardcore than baseball is like once a batter is out, they're like out forever. It's like they're dead. It's like if you strike out, you never come back and that's it for you, which is so hardcore. Yeah, it's a very intense game because the idea that you but you can finish your turn without being out. Yes, Right. I think I I don't understand. (laughs) Well, look, this just goes to show you how engaging this movie is, because I was so wrapped up in the drama of the game and I don't even know what I was watching. (laughs) I really don't even know what I was watching. I was just waiting for people to tell me, like at the end, when the British soldier caught the ball, I was like, oh, fuck, they lost. And then the camera pans down. I didn't even know what I was looking at at first. I rewound. I was like, oh, he stepped out of bounds. And I just think it's an amazing feat to make me care about something that I don't understand one bit. All I understand was like, okay, they're up, they're down, they're getting this many points. This is, you know, like, I don't even know why it switched to the other thing. Did they get, you know, I don't know. It was tricky. (laughs) No, you're right. But it's like you got those like tense drums going and you're feeling really freaked out. try to like figure out more about cricket because honestly I think it's on us to try to understand cricket like cricket is the second most popular sport in the world like 2.5 billion people watch it number one of course is soccer um it's a cricket is like a huge deal I mean this is a game that goes back to like the 1500s it's so old that they don't even know why it's called cricket like one of the theories about why it's called cricket is because like the old English word for crutch kind of sounds like cricket but they're not really sure. And it has all of its own language. Like, you know how here some of the cricket players are trying to like get other people upset and they're like heckling them. Like, you can't do this. You're yeah. not cool. That that doesn't even have the word heckle. They call it sledge. It's like it's whole other word. You're sledging somebody if you're trying to like get them upset and be like, your wow. mama this, like your mama that. Sledging. I mean, and there is a little bit of that. This is like is a historical in that like. Yeah, Indian people did not yet play cricket at this time in history. They didn't really start playing it for like another 20 years is kind of like the estimate. Okay. But I guess that fits like the actors in the whole part of the movie. Like, I mean, one of the reasons that some of these actors were cast in the film, like the kind of ensemble villagers, is that none of them knew how to play cricket because he wanted to make sure that we were watching these actors learn to play cricket as the film was kind of watching these performers wow, I guess learn you to play five months, cricket. what a beautiful uh, way to go. Right? Except for like Amir Khan, who of course is like magically, just amazingly, naturally wonderful at cricket. Uh, or his character is. It's just like, it's all down to you. I mean, also Amir Khan was like a professional tennis player before he was even an actor. 
Also, as I'm relating him to like 90 other actors, like mm-hmm. he's kind of a Coppola. He's like a, if Nick Cage was also a jock, like he comes from oh, like gosh. a professional acting family. So many of his relatives are like types of filmmakers. I mean, this guy is just like a manufactured ultimate movie star. You know what? I will say that in a movie where obviously everyone in the country understands cricket, they do a great job of explaining what needs to happen at the very end. Like, we have eight more balls left and we need to get 12 runs on the eight balls. Like, they do, at the very end, get very granular about what needs to happen. We only have one batter left. We have, like, I'm like, okay, I, I, I understand the stakes. Like, they, they did do a good job of uh, resetting the stakes, I felt like. Although... One of the things they did in the marketing of this movie in India that I think is so crazy is that they didn't tell people that cricket was in the movie. Like they kept it a surprise in all of the trailers. And so people bought a ticket to Lagan knowing it was like a historical epic. But then the cricket comes in and they're like, oh, my God, it's a fucking cricket movie. And people get like stoked. Wow. I don't know why they did that, but it clearly worked somehow. Yeah, that's a very I mean, look. Spider-Man No Way Home can barely do that, but I guess if you are shooting in the middle of a village in India, you can maybe keep a large plot points uh, totally at bay because you would imagine that that sequence, if this movie took five months, that definitely was a month of shooting cricket. Eight Easily. weeks. Eight weeks Eight of weeks. shooting cricket. Wow. And it was like 100 degrees outside. It was really hot, and they're just playing cricket and kind of feeling like they're going to die. One of the things that was happening on the set is, you know, how I said that like Amir Khan's wife was a producer. Mm-hmm. She made a point of only sitting outside without an umbrella because they didn't have enough money to have umbrellas for everybody. Even though this was one of the most expensive movies made at the time, it was like $6 million. It was kind of people being like, whoa, you spent $6 million on a movie? That's nuts. But because they didn't have umbrellas for everybody, she always sat in the sun herself without an umbrella to be like an example Whereas like other actors like who are playing like the untouchable or like the lower status people, even in the village, deliberately laid outside in the sun to bake because they felt like Indian audiences would like buy their characters credibility based on how dark their skin was. So there was this whole other like sun dimension to it. So fascinating. I mean, this is the stuff that I think goes over my head. And I, I feel like if you are on the fence about watching it, I think you can enjoy this movie on multiple levels. I think if you are... You know, if you are from India, you're going to see a whole different thing than I'm going to see. I'm seeing archetypes. I'm th- I'm seeing big ideas and characters, and I'm in, I'm connected to that. And I'm sure there's so many more little things that I'm not even picking up on. And I don't think we can. But it doesn't dissuade you from enjoying the whole movie, which is, again, to the point of a 90-minute cricket sequence, which was incredibly engaging. I mean, yeah, like, if you're in India at the time that this movie comes out, This film feels so different in a way that we don't quite, I think, notice because it feels, I think, to us very like standard big Oscar biopic. Like in India at the time, the big trend in movies was like people wearing designer clothes, people shooting in Europe, particularly Switzerland. There was this film that came out that we debated doing, which um, the short name of it is just DDLJ, that really kind of glitzified uh, Bollywood cinema. I mentioned this podcast, of like, I don't know, months ago, the movie podcast, M-U-B-I. Mm-hmm. They did an episode on the history of, like, the movie DDLJ and how it kind of broke open the boundaries of um, Bollywood cinema and encouraged people to go, like, shoot in Switzerland because it was so beautiful and come up with, like, reasons for their, like, characters to dress in more modern clothes and, like, travel to Europe and, like, you know, get a little bit more, like, ritzy in the eyes of what a Bollywood film could be. 
And so this film, Lagan, was like this sharp about face to all of that, that made it seem kind of old fashioned, but new at the same time because it was being such a mashup of genres. And so it really felt, it feels fresh in a way that I just want to like emphasize because I know it's harder for us to see it being used to like, you know, historical big epics. One of the things that a local critic wrote about it at the time was he said, you know, quote, it bridged the gap between mass audiences and the thinning intellectual crowd, that it was a radical educationist's dream, a history lesson wrapped up in play. Look, you know, Amy, that whole earring thing wouldn't have happened if uh, Amir Khan, you know, didn't decide to pierce his ear. You know, he felt like he needed to do it for the character. So if he didn't pierce his ear, he wouldn't have gotten that earring. He wouldn't have fallen in love. He may have been with his wife to this day. So there's a lesson for everybody out there. Don't pierce your ears because you never know who's going to give you an earring and then wreck your life. Or maybe make your life. Look at it in either way. Glass half full, glass half empty. Ear half pierced. Ear half unpierced? <laughs> That's impossible. Obviously, this movie is a gigantic feat. It's beautiful. It's expensive. It's huge. But it took about 10 years for Dev Anand, another director, to realize or to come to the conclusion that this movie was just ripping off his 1990 movie, A Wall Number, which also starred the star of this film, Amir Khan. Um, he felt he wasn't given any credit for it. Um, and I think the issue is because A Wall Number isn't exactly this story. The story is giant in scope. And this is more about, I mean, basically this match between uh, India and Australia, and there's like a bomb on the field. Uh, it really is just a cricket movie, but an underdog and the idea of being like the a local team playing another country. Uh, but it was interesting that this director made a kind of a stink 10 years after this film, which is arguably one of the biggest hits. But I just thought that was an interesting thing to see that uh, 10 years later, someone came out and was like, you ripped me off. Even though looking at everything, it doesn't seem like he did. But uh, I just thought it was interesting that Devanand uh, made a, a point about this. And if anyone can kind of help illuminate that more, let me know in the Discord. I, I want to just kind of figure out why Devanon took 10 years and what his issue really was. I am curious. I mean, I wonder if part of why he didn't raise a stink at the time is because there was some momentum towards trying to kind of break this drought of Indian films not winning Oscars. And he was worried about coming up with some scandal that would like derail it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because the whole country seems like it was very invested in this race. I don't know if that that's a completely random guess. I have no clue. Look, and I think I mean also I think it's it's interesting. It's the same way you see the the guys who sued Stranger Things to be like, well, I had an idea similar. This seems like it was just kind of in the same vein, even though it didn't cover anything else. And there's a lot of a lot of a lot of beef on this movie about how they didn't cover cricket the right way. It, there's so many things that get into the nitty gritty of how this is not actually the game of cricket the umpiring signals are wrong and that the bowling is done differently. A lot of different, a lot of people getting in there and getting uh, angry years after the movie came out. But I thought it was interesting. So what you're saying is they Shakespeare and loved it. Wow. There you go. Well, with that, I mean, I need to ask, what was the reaction uh, from the critics? I mean, the critics that they, they came here to woo, uh, you know, what, what did they think? 
They were wooed. I mean, critics were very, very wooed by this film. I mean, Ebert, who I know I name-checked earlier, like, he was just ecstatic about it, really clinging to this as an example of, like, what a Bollywood film could be and why audiences should, like, start going to see them, you know? And kind of taking digs at, like, the limitations of how people here at home felt about musicals. You know, this almost was, like, kind of held up as a flashpoint of, like, give musicals a chance, you dummies. You know, people writing articles about how, how kind of disappointed they were in British audiences that when, like, Belle starts singing her song in her room, like, running around with that, like, red scarf... That in England, that was the scene where all of the British people in the audience started laughing. That kind of like laughter, awkwardness left of saying like, I am not going on this journey with you anymore. Like, mm. because that's a British actress and I refuse, you know, I, 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 you've now made me feel weird. I, and that's, you know, kind of sad, although it is ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous scene, but also it became a flashpoint for saying like, why don't our audiences dare to dream bigger? So Ebert, of course, is like writing these defenses, you know, like as the camera plunges into this joyous choreography with dancers and singers and swirls of beautifully colored saris, such dance sequences would be too contrived and illogical for sensible modern Hollywood. But here we feel like we're getting away with something as we enjoy them. So it was very hard to find a negative view. I actually had to scour and scour and scour. And I finally found one from the New York Post who wrote a negative review that was kind of reviewing all of Bollywood at once, you know, also writing for an audience that they didn't think were very familiar with this type of film. So they called it a typically crude but weirdly enjoyable Indian period musical. If you've never seen a masala musical, uh, that's the type of name for musicals that are like a combination of a bunch of genres, mm -hmm. you might find Lagan hilariously bad. It's got cartoony acting, dreadful dialogue, obvious dubbing, and meandering but unpredictable plots. But those are just simply part of the Bollywood package, along with six musical numbers and a bizarre mixture of romance, comedy, and melodrama. And while Lagan is gorgeously photographed, in every other way it's so lacking in subtlety it could be the product of 12-year-olds. Its stereotypes occasionally make Lagan feel like a Chinese Maoist propaganda opera. But if you can <sighs> swallow its absurdities and crudities, Lagan really is an enormously good film. So he's basically saying, I think this genre is kind of bogus, but if you can get past the genre, you might like it. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a very, <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. That's crazy. I mean, that's a very weird, I mean, like, well, it's New York Post. What am I going to do? I'm going to break that down even more. Um, this movie is interesting because it's huge. It's an epic. We talk about Lawrence of Arabia for its scope. I think this movie belongs to be in the same dialogue. I mean, it, it's self-assured. It's beautiful. It's a musical and it's a sports film. There's so many reasons to put this on one of the best films of all time because not only is it one of the three uh, pictures, Indian films that have ever been nominated for an Academy Award, but it covers so many different genres. And we have no representation for this on our list. Not that our list has to be, you know, you know, all balanced, but it's a worthy consideration for something that checks off multiple boxes and also does something that we have not have any uh, representation for on the list at this point. I agree. I mean, is it time at least to spoil how it did at the 74th Oscars? Oh my gosh, I didn't even know that it could be spoiled, but now that you said it, yes, tell me. <laughs> okay, so as you heard in the intro, it is up against some stiff 
competition number one among them being Amelie, you know, gigantic crowd pleaser out oh, of French my. by Jean-Pierre Jeunet. And the Oscar went to... Ah, and the Oscar goes to Bosnia and Herzegovina for No Man's Land, accepting the award the director, Dennis Tonovich. No, Lagan did not win. It was oh. No Man's Land, which if you have not seen No Man's Land, that's a film from Bosnia that's actually fantastic. It's like this very absurdist black comedy that's like about these two soldiers from opposite sides of the conflict in a war with like a landmine. It's 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 a very like talky, funny, argumentative, really sharp piece that took the prize, probably because we're in like a real war mindset, too. And it was an excellent film dashing the hopes of all of India, who are already kind of peeved that they're like, this is our best film and you only nominated it for the foreign language picture. Like, and India has not had a picture up from foreign language ever since. Wow. Big drought. Big, big drought. Due to be broken. Hey, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the moment. Um, all right. Well, great. Amy, uh, we have one more left, Amy. One more film left. And I got to say, I really wanted to do Moulin Rouge. I felt Moulin Rouge was on the docket, but there's one film that kept on coming back time and time again, and I was shocked by it. And to ignore it would be, would be not, uh, you know, we, we can't do that. We are, we're trying to do the best thing possible. And I know it's a movie that you really want to do as well. And uh, I, I feel like I'll let you do the, uh, the honors here and let us know what our final movie musical is. Little Shop of Horrors. Little Shop of Horrors. There it is. We're going to do Little Shop of Horrors, the the one with Steve Martin, Rick Moranis, that one. That, that's the one that we're going to do. Take a listen to the trailer. It all began in this little shop. Ow! Damn roses. Where, strange as it seems, something extraordinary happens. I'm afraid it isn't feeling very well today. No, it's not this What kind of a weirdo plant is that, Seymour? Little Shop of Horrors, a story about a boy. I've given you sunlight. I've given you rain. Looks like you're not happy. Bless I open a vein. Where did you get such a weird plant? A girl. You don't make a nice voice when you live on Skid Row, Mr. Mushnick. Look, this is my date, my boyfriend. A florist. I'm telling you, Audrey, he's not a good, clean kind of boy. He's a professional. You have a talent for causing pain. Hey, stop me a People will pay you me if you I've been saving all month for this. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. And a plant. Feed me all night long. How am I supposed to keep on feeding you? Whoa! Feed me now! I'm just a mean green brother from outer space and I'm playing. I'm just a mean green brother from outer space and it looks like you've been hanged. Yes! Rick Moranis. Man's a total disgrace to the dental profession. Ellen Green. Excuse me. Excuse me what? That's better. Vincent Gardenia, with special guest appearances by Steve Martin, John Candy, and Bill Murray. It's your professionalism that I respect. Little Shop of Horrors. All right, Amy. Well, we will see you next week for our final in our musical series. 
uh, Little Shop of Horrors, and don't dismay. We, I know there's so many out there that you wanted us to do, from South Park to Moulin Rouge. There's to so Rocky many. Rocky Horror to Tommy. Rocky Horror, I'm, I'm Tommy, sad about those. Ugh. Hedwig. We haven't, there are so many temptations. Jesus Christ Superstar, speaking of temptations. I mean, there's so much. So let's just say we'll always Umbrellas revisit the Umbrellas of musical. Cherbourg. Sorry, I oh, feel bad we yes. didn't get that one either. Oh. <laughs> so many. But, you know, we have to keep on moving. We have to keep this train going forward, and we will. So uh, we have a fun series planned for you after this. But let's just enjoy our last musical with Little Shop of Horrors. See you next week. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group, that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right, go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Oh,